Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Uh, 18 verses, and we're going to take two weeks to work through this. Um, let me say something to the uh, uh, young ones, uh, you children in the room uh, this morning. I'm glad that you guys are in here. I want to ask you to do your best to uh, be respectful, uh, try to sit and listen. And uh, w- a lot of what I'm going to say will be hard. That's part of learning. That's part of it. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to say today is going to be hard for all of us. We're exploring deep and mysterious things. But I want you to try to think of questions that you can ask your, your mom and your dad afterwards. And I'd love it if you would come and ask me some questions afterwards as well. So do your best to listen as much as you can here. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the first 18 verses. So please follow along as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth, John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Oh, our God in heaven, there are some passages of the Bible that we recognize. We really have no right to even be able to see the words with our eyes, to hear such sweet and precious words with our ears. But not only have you given these to us, but you have given us your spirit to shine light so that we can come to some sort of understanding of these things. 
These are holy mysteries. These are eternal and wonderful things, things too amazing for us to understand in its fullness. But we are asking, O oh God, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are humble and able to receive so that with whatever we're allowed, with whatever we're able, that we would be enabled to, to come to see these things so that they change us. So we ask, oh God, please send us your spirit now. Give us help, Lord, that we would be able to, to think on a level deeper than we normally can and then take us beyond this to see your glory. Father, we ask, exalt the name of your son. We know you are going to exalt Jesus by everything that happens and that comes even when people ignore him. They will still fall. They will still bow. But, oh God, we beg, <coughs> exalt the name of your son in this place by all of us that we see and worship. So please bring this about. Show us your glory. And we pray these things through the name of your son. Amen. The Council of Nicaea and about the next 50 years that followed after that had more drama than any soap opera you've ever seen. Around the year uh, 320 AD, a man by the name of uh, Arius, we now refer to him as Arius the heretic, but then it was just Arius. Man by the name of Arius uh, began to uh, introduce some teachings to the world and he became incredibly popular. He became a very popular preaching and what he was saying sounded new and edgy. It was attractive and it began to spread. And as so often happens, when an idea begins to be accepted by the cool kids, it spreads like a wildfire. Arius's teaching that he began to introduce was that Jesus, the son of God, was not God himself, but that he was like God, that he is similar in nature and in essence to God. And so this began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And because this was uh, hot and debated and intense, the Council of Nicaea was convened in, in, in the year 325 A.D. It lasted three months long and included hundreds of Christian leaders. And uh, it, it was brought together in order to clarify, in order to come to conclusions, what exactly does the Bible say concerning who is Jesus? What, what is his relationship to the Father? What does it mean that he is the Son of God? Well, you, you know the obvious and historic belief, what we now refer to as um, orthodoxy, which orthodox just means the established doctrine, okay? So you know what this is, that the Bible te clearly teaches that Jesus is not simply like God, he is God. But, but as happens over and over in history, God has often allowed and even ordained error to arise in order to clarify truth. Because when an error begins to get popular, what it does is it causes Christians to have to go to their Bibles 
and dig deeper than they ever had before because they're asking questions they never knew to ask before. Christian leaders and scholars are forced to go to the word and make crystal clear what does it say. And actually the church is built up and strengthened by God actually allowing error. These errors, these heresies, guys, they come and they go. They seem like they're, you know, when they come on the scene, it seems like they're going to be here forever. They all fall. They all fade. They all look stupid. And later on in history, okay, though all the cool kids and the hip genes who were preaching these things at the time, they seem so powerful, okay, give it a hundred years later and everybody looks back and says, how could you be so stupid? The truth of God prevails, but God allows this to come. Arius's error became known as Arianism. And uh, one of his lines was, there was when he was not. Meaning that there was a point somewhere in eternity that Jesus didn't exist and that God uh, made him or created him or brought him forward at, at some point in time. So Christian leaders came together. The two most towering figures uh, at the Council of Nicaea were Arius, the heretic, and a man named Athanasius. A good, strong name you need to know. We need to bring back these guys' names. We start naming children Athanasius and stuff, okay? But uh, Athanasius and Arius were the two towering figures. Now, honorable mention goes to a man named Nicholas of Myra. Nicholas is the guy that later in history, some would refer to as Saint Nick. It is reported that uh, Nicholas slapped or punched Arius in the face, okay? Denominational meetings were spicier back in these days, okay? But Arius and Athanasius, remember these names. And what happened is for three months, a meeting for three months, for three months, these Christian leaders debated and debated hotly. Every time that Athanasius and the side of obvious, clear biblical doctrine would say something that shows the Bible says Jesus is God, John 1, 1, Arius's crew would come back and say something sly, spin doctor manipulative and say something like, sure, God is a title that he has been given, like an honorary title. When, when Athanasius and, and historic uh, doctrine would, would pronounce that Jesus is begotten of the Father, which means that he is of the same essence as the Father, uh, the Arius, Arianism would reply with something like, no, 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 he was begotten in that there was a point he didn't exist and he was made. Every time orthodoxy would point out some clear place, the Arians would, would deceive and spin doctor work it. The battle was intense. And I get it that as you sit there, you could think, well, I don't understand how it could be that hotly debated. Like, is it really up in question whether or not Jesus is God? Like, like why was there such the debate? All right, I want you to take our modern day as an example. Let me ask you this question. Is it crystal clear from the Bible that humans are unclean sinners who deserve the wrath of God and that we must be saved. Yeah, that's crystal clear. I mean, it's just, it's all over the Bible. It almost pulls a St. Nick and punches you in the face with that doctrine. It's clear. But let me ask you, 
Is that the, what, what the majority of American Christianity holds to? No. All right, so what does that show? What it shows is that worldliness is always threatening the church. Just because something is clear from the Bible doesn't mean that that's what everybody's going to believe. Why? Because Satan is at work. In this cursed age, Satan hates God, hates the glory of God, hates the gospel, hates Christ, hates the glory of Christ, hates the church, hates truth, and works in the spirit of the age to always be casting doubt to always be working to corrupt the truth. A big part of the church's job is the work of being the pillar and support of the truth. Holding to sound doctrine is one of our tasks. But at the council, you know, eventually um, clear biblical truth prevailed and the leaders wrote a statement that we now refer to as the Nicene Creed. Um, now, by the way, I know this is a longer introduction and I'm only like halfway through, okay? Um, but this is gonna serve us for two weeks, for the next two weeks of study. So just hang in there with me with this. I wanna read you a portion of the Nicene Creed, okay? Parenthesis, Christian, you need to be familiar with these historic creeds, all right? Uh, our church has some exciting things we want to announce in coming in 2022 about some church history teaching that's going to be coming that I'm gonna wait to tell you the full thing about, but know that some of that is coming. But the Nicene Creed, here's, here's the first part of it. It reads, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the same essence as the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, there, there's more in there, but for our consideration, just, just consider this part. A critical, critical part of that statement is where it says that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father, being of one substance with the Father. Um, the, Greek, the critical Greek word there that they used was homoousios. So if you saw your bulletin and the title for the sermon and thought, what in the world uh, is that? That this is the critical word that was used there. And it means of the same essence as the father, uh, meaning that Jesus is not made and he's not made of something different than the father. All right. For you kids in the room. Look up here towards me, Ruby. Okay, look up here towards me. All right, in your catechisms that you guys learn, all right, do you remember question number six that says, are there more gods than one? What is the answer? No, there's only one God. Very good. Now here's the next question, and I want you guys to say it for me, okay? Say it good and loud. This is the time I'm allowing you to speak during the service, okay? Question seven, in how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Man, that is awesome. I am so proud of you guys. Good job. That 
answer that you guys remembered, that's a part of the, the children's version of the catechism, the shorter catechism. But as you get older, and now I speak to the rest in the room, adults included, catechisms were not originally made for children. They were made for adults, okay? The larger catechism, you eventually want to get familiar with the full, the Baptist catechism or the larger catechism. And the fuller version of this goes like this. If you ask my daughters, they can show you motions that they made up for this and we remember it with a song. They might even sing it for you if you ask them. The fuller answer goes like this. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. That phrase there, same in essence, it sounds so simple. We, we just kind of take it for granted. Christian, there were battles, not figurative, literal battles where men and women died to defend that phrase. P blood was shed to defend the statement, homoousios. Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. And what it means, I'll say it simply for the kids first, it means that Jesus is of the same stuff as the Father. He's not different in that way, in his essence, in, what, um, in who he is. Uh, so you are not the same essence uh, of a dog or a, a monkey, okay? But of your parents, your brothers and sisters, your human friends, you're of the same essence as they are. You are not the same in essence with God. Jesus is not a creation of God. You are a creation of God. Jesus is God with the Father. He is same in essence. He's equal to the Father in power and in glory. So Arius argued that Jesus is similar to God. He's like God. He's homoousios, okay? But what the Bible shows is homoousios, okay? He's not similar, he is same in essence. And so the Nicene Creed clarified these things and all the world was set right, right? No. After Nicaea, um, Arianism actually increased. It actually increased. There were portions of the Roman Empire where Arianism was actually the predominant belief. That's the way it goes in history over and over again. New idea gets attractive. It stays, you know, uh, edgy and, and lovable for a while, and then the truth prevails. And the question, the battle is not over what will the church technically hold to on paper. The real battle is bringing the people to believe the truth. And this is the great battle that Athanasius fought for the next five decades. For the next 50 years, Athanasius 
preached and taught. And at times where he was banished from the Roman Empire, he, he fought with the pen. He wrote letters and we still have some of his works today that you can go to the store and buy. And he labored to show the people so that they believed the truth. The Arians were trying to uh, spread their doctrine. They found that they could not beat Athanasius theologically because he had the Bible on his side. And so they decided to try to shut him up by killing him. And there's actually numerous ways that they tried this. There was one time that the Arians actually paid a man off, a man named Arsenius, to go into hiding, to go disappear. And they made the accusation that Athanasius murdered him. They made the accusation that Athanasius actually cut off Arsenius's hands. And then they spread this slander it reached the ears of the emperor Constantine. Constantine then called him to trial. Athanasius went on trial because of this false accusation. Meanwhile, okay, some of the exciting uh, stuff going on on the, on the side. One of Athanasius's good friends went on a manhunt to go find Arsenius. Found Arsenius hiding out in a monastery, uh, taking the money that he had been bribed with. And they actually brought him to the trial, cloaked him in a hood so nobody could see who he was. And there came a point in the trial that the Arians brought a severed human hand and presented it as evidence saying, this is the hand that Athanasius cut off when he murdered Arsenius, to which Athanasius then called forward Arsenius, pulled the cloak back and the gasp of the audience as they saw that he was innocent. But over and over again, they would keep trying. And by the time it was over, Athanasius would be banished from the Roman Empire five different times. When he was banished, he would fight with the pen. On numerous occasions, Arians made uh, military raids, slaughtering people in churches, desecrating graveyards and such, all trying to hunt down Athanasius to kill him. But still he preached, still he taught. Still, he battled. It took 50 years, 50 years, but he fought for the gospel. And when he died, Arianism was just a tiny little dysfunctional group no longer holding the influence that it once did. It took him 50 years, but he fought and prevailed. As we investigate John 1, to study the incarnation. Incarnation referring to flesh, so Jesus coming in the flesh. To search and study to see exactly who Jesus is. Christian, you, you need to remember that there were men and women who bled, who died, who suffered in order to pass the Bible on, but also to pass on the understanding of it. Holding to the truth, upholding doctrine as God calls us to do. And when we take time, especially in the Christmas season, to study the incarnation, uh, to search the scriptures, to see who exactly is Jesus. What does it mean that the son of God came and took flesh? We need to know that this is part of the way that God the father is revealing the glory of his son. We've learned in the book of Romans that God has ordered history he has ordered all things so as to point a spotlight onto his son. 
He is orchestrating all of history, all of scripture, all of events so, so that the name of Jesus is exalted to the highest place as Lord. So that angels and men marvel so that we adore him. God the Father has worked so as to, uh, in, the, in the most magnified way, glorify the name of his Son. As we exult in Jesus, we give thanks to the Father. We do this by the urging and help and instruction of the Holy Spirit, leading us on to glorify God. Christian, this is part of the gospel. When you think of the gospel, the gospel is not just justification by faith. The gospel is also who is Jesus, this redeemer. And so when we investigate the incarnation and we search to study who he is, we are seeing his glory. These are ways that God has worked. So we're going to consider uh, John 1. We're going to do it over the course of two weeks. Uh, this week, we're going to look at verse 1. And just consider it. The plan is next week to come back and, and study verses 14 and 18. So in verse 1, there are three phrases. Those will be the three points that we look at. So here is point number one. In the beginning was the word. The word, therefore, word, is the Greek logos. The simplest translation of it is word. So what we have there in our English Bibles is a good translation. But, but we also need to know that there is no single English word that could capture the many chapters worth of information and depth that is included in the significance of this term logos. There are ways that in the providence of God, he worked in history to prepare the world for the coming of the Redeemer, for the coming of Jesus the Son. There are ways that God the Father worked so that when this term would be used, logos, so that Jewish ears would perk up and see incredible significance, but also ways that even Greek philosophers Pagan philosophers, God ordained that they would come to certain conclusions and see some realities of this world so that when they heard that Jesus is the Logos, their ears would perk up and it would hold incredible significance and weight as well. Um, next week, my intention is to spend a little bit more time talking about um, some of the significance of the term logos amongst the Greeks, the Gentiles of the world. But let me say just a couple things regarding what it meant for the Jewish people who had the scriptures. With all kinds of subjects in the Bible, you can follow them as a theme through scripture. You can go to the book of Genesis, in which we've said every major doctrine of the Bible is introduced in the book of Genesis. And you can see it introduced in Genesis and then see how through progressive revelation, which just means that God revealed more and more little bits at a time, God unfolded a greater understanding of this theme and then it finds its fulfillment in Christ. And by the way, I don't care what subject, what theme you pick. All of them from uh, marriage and intimacy 
to the kingdom of God, worship, blood atonement, sacrifice, uh, the sovereignty of God. You, you just pick all of them. They start in Genesis, they unfold through scripture and they all point to the glory of Christ. This, this is how God has worked in this world. And that's also true of this poetic way of referring to Jesus. Genesis 1, creation was brought forth, how? By God speaking. By the word of God commanding the nothingness to create, to make. And what God commanded came forward. God created the heavens and the earth by speaking. There is power in the word of God. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we come to learn that when God gives a command, when God gives instruction, that word is the final and ultimate word on the subject. When God said to Adam that in the day he ate of the fruit, he would surely die. Adam couldn't go to any higher court or power to appeal or to complain. The word of God is as the foundations that uphold the very earth itself. The Old Testament reveals that the word of God has the power to give life. God breathed into Adam and man became a living being. The, the breath of God came out and breathed into Adam. The voice of God breaks the cedars. The voice of God strips the forest bare. The word of God makes the deer to skip and the calves to birth. In Ezekiel, we're shown the word of God has the power to take the dead and bring them to life, to take dry bones and to put sinew and flesh on them. The word of God creates. The word of God rules. The word of God gives life. The word of God gives light, revealing, explaining, manifesting, showing. By the way, do you see all of that mentioned in John 1, in that section that we read, by the way? The word of God creates, the word of God rules, the word of God gives life, the word of God gives light. In him was life and the life was the light of men. John 1 is causing us to understand Jesus here by showing us this. So, so what does it mean? Jesus, the son of God is the word, the word of God. What exactly does that mean? Well, what did we just say? The word of God creates, the word of God rules, the word of God brings life, the word of God brings light, it reveals. When you speak a word, that word is part of you and it communicates what you have had inside you. It reveals you, your words explain you. Jesus has come in order to reveal the father. If you, John one, look down to verse 18, that last verse that we read there says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is Jesus, who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. Jesus has come in order to explain God. He has revealed God. So this is similar to Hebrews 1, telling us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, God the Father. God is glorious. The, the glory that shines off of God, what shows you the Father, Jesus has come to show us the glory of the Father. And again, um, in the Gospel of John, all of this is intentional, by the way. Um, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John was also a genius. 
That helps, okay? In the Gospel of John, um, four times we're shown that Jesus came forth from the Father in order to come and reveal. Do you remember that time in the Gospel of John when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father? And what did Jesus reply? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That doesn't mean that they are the same person. What it means is if you want to know what the Father is like, look to Jesus. If you want to know the character of the Father, look at the character of Jesus. He is the exact representation of his nature. He is the only begotten of the Father, meaning he's of the same essence. If you beget something, um, pregnant ladies in our church, I think we're up to five or 10 or 20 or something like this. Be careful drinking the water here, okay? But all of the ladies who are pregnant in the church, you're going to beget a human. It's of the same essence as you. This is what is poetically being uh, preached to us when we are told that Jesus is begotten, the only begotten of the Father. All of this, you know, uh, deep and mysterious, and this is why the early church spent about 400 years uh, investigating. The first 400 years was solidifying uh, the doctrine of who is Jesus. How are we to know him and understanding? Jesus is the eternal and divine word. Um, Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 as I read this to you. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the word. And so when we look at what the Holy Spirit was communicating to the, to the Jews who had the scriptures historically at this point, we, we read in the beginning was the word. That phrase, in the beginning, as we've you know, pointed out before, causes a bell to ring in our heads, reminding us of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning is referring to before the world was made. In the beginning. Now, track this. The New Testament at least shows us that time itself is a creation of God And so if the Bible is referring to in the beginning, before creation, before time itself, we're being shown here that this is speaking of eternity past before there even was time. Before creation, before time itself was the word. Jesus was there. And so when Genesis 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 all tell us that Jesus is the person who was primarily doing the work of creation. Those are three chapters you need to remember, by the way, Christian. Three chapters that show us the most about who Jesus is. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. You investigate all those places, it reveals much about the Trinity and who Jesus is. But each one of those places show us that when Genesis 1-1 says that in the beginning God, 
created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is there. Jesus is with the Father. The, the, the triune God was involved in, in creation, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father was involved in creation. We're shown he was much involved in the planning and design of creation. Jesus, the Son, uh, did we're, we're shown as the primary agent doing the creating. And then Genesis 1, 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. What was he doing? You remember that section in Romans 8, whenever we were uh, uh, studying who the Holy Spirit is and what he does? We were seeing the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, finishing, perfecting, beautifying what had been begun by Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. The new creation planned by the Father, redeemed by Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is now he who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ. There are great, great mysteries here being revealed. I'm tempted at times to say more than what I know with certainty. So there are times I just have to say, got to stay within the bounds and not go any further. In the beginning... Before time, in eternity past, there was the Word. Now here's the second phrase, and these will go quicker. And the Word was with God. There are at least two significant things that are said here by this phrase, the Word was with God. First, it is clarifying that in the beginning, before creation, before time, Jesus was there. So in case you missed it uh, from the first statement, he was there in the beginning. But here's the second thing. Notice what it says about the distinct personhood of Jesus, the son. I, I said in the beginning that throughout church history, God has allowed and even ordained errors to come at times in order to clarify the truth Later in history after Arianism, here's another heresy that the church had to battle for a season and it ended up strengthening the church. It's a heresy called modalism. Modalism is the idea that there is one God in one person. So we see the Bible teach there's one God in three persons. Modalism says there's one God in one person and that one God sort of exists with different modes of being. So kind of like there are different sides of God, so to speak. And so what, what modalism teaches is that when Jesus came to the earth, that is also the father. Uh, when Jesus went to the cross, the father hung on the cross. Well, well no, that's, that's heresy. That's misunderstanding the personhood of the father, son, and spirit. Now, this is also the case that in your lifetime, you may have heard some bad illustrations, even coming out of Baptist churches who should know better and study church history more. Okay. But it's possible that you've, you've learned a bad illustration about the Trinity. Have you ever heard this one? Have you ever heard that you can be a father, a son, and a brother all at the same time? Well, that's kind of like God. Well, no, that's, that's heresy. We've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Let's burn that to the ground, okay? We've moved on past these things. That's heresy. That's modalism, okay? What, what the Bible teaches is that there's one God in three persons. And so the second phrase is highlighting the distinct personhood of Jesus, okay? And so, you know, when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't the Father hanging on the cross, it was the son. 
Now, the Father and the Son are one, united as one, but there is distinct personhood. And that's communicated here by this, this second statement. So it doesn't say, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word is the Father. No, no, no. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus was with the Father. That's actually saying a lot. And then here's the third phrase. And the Word... I mean, this is just one of the most powerful statements in the whole Bible. And the Word was God. If you take these two phrases together, this is the quickest way that we have uh, of explaining the doctrine of the Trinity. With God and was God. Personhood and divinity. Distinction and deity with God and was God. You know, sometimes people argue against the Trinity by saying this, and sometimes there are well-meaning Christians who are just asking sincere questions who, who say, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. So why do we make such a big deal about it? And, and that is correct that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But understand this, we could have just stuck with the title with God and was God, okay? Trinity's quicker. Okay, we, we could just all go around saying with God and was God. Okay, and that is communicating the doctrine. Okay, because then we add in the, our understanding of the Holy Spirit and how Jesus referred to him as a he. Okay, so with God and was God is communicating the Trinity. It's just that Trinity, tri-unity, okay, is a quicker way of saying it. Jesus is eternal, living with the Father before creation in eternity past, as one translation uh, renders John 1, he was face to face with God, and Jesus the Son was God. Now, he is still God, and he always will be God. But what John is emphasizing here is the eternality of Jesus, that Jesus always has. So in other words, friends, it didn't come about that Jesus became God. No, no. He has always been God from eternity past. Verse two uh, says it again, by the way, to clarify it. Okay. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God. He is divine. But as the church has found throughout history, it's not enough to just say divine. Even that can be misconstrued. Okay. So if I understand Aries's argument, I think that he would have said, Sure, Jesus is divine-ish. You know, he's like God. No, no, no. Notice that the Bible goes to the full, uh, bold conclusion. It goes further than just saying that Jesus is divine. He was God. And the book of Revelation shows that he is now and always will be worshipped as God. The Nicene Creed clarifies uh, in the way that it does because of this. Um, that, that section there, uh, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. What are they emphasizing there? Jesus is not a lesser being. He is equal to the Father in power and in glory. <coughs> Look, that Jesus is God can be shown from verse 3 here. Look at John 1, 3, and I want to tell you that even if we didn't have that last phrase of John 1, 1, even if it had not already come out and explicitly stated this, you can prove uh, the godness of Jesus from verse 3. Look what it says there. 
all things came into being through him, through Jesus. Okay. So Jesus made all things, but it clarifies and goes further. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus made everything that has ever been made. So what would be contained in the things that he didn't make? So if you write out a list, what are all the things that Jesus didn't make? What would be on that list? Well, it would only be things that are eternal because they already existed before anything was created. Okay. Well, what already existed? What is eternal? Answer, God. In the beginning, God. And God created creation out of nothing. And so if you think about it, what did Arius say? Arius said there was a time that Jesus the Son did not exist and that he was made, produced, brought forth in some way. But what does John 1, 3 say? Okay, anything that was made, Jesus made it. He didn't make himself Okay, so if you see this contained in one verse, there is a logical argument that is showing uh, the eternality and that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God with the father is preached all through the New Testament. Okay, the father is not the son. The father is not the spirit. The son is not the spirit and etc. So when Jesus was on the cross, it was not the father hanging on the cross, one God in three persons. Again, sometimes people object to this or sincere Christians ask the question. They say, well, the Bible just doesn't teach explicitly the doctrine of the Trinity. So why make such a big deal about it? Well, one is I would argue verses one to 18 is making a clear and explicit argument. This is a place that you can go through and see the Bible communicating the doctrine of the Trinity. We have to slow down. We have to think through it sometimes for years, but it is there. But it's also something that we see implied all the time. Throughout the New Testament, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's implied almost on, in every single book, every single letter of the New Testament. Now, this is the part I was helped by uh, Pastor James White. If you're familiar with any of his stuff, he does a, a helpful job teaching on the Trinity from time to time. One of the things that he's pointed out is that over and over again, you have this equation in the New Testament. We come to God through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. That equation, we see it over and over again in the New Testament. And by that, there is implication. Like the very last verse of the book of 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, I'm going to reference it here. 2 Corinthians, very last verse of the whole book. It says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, this question has come to my mind. And so this is, this is, this is part of what's being addressed here. When some people say, okay, yeah, they're all mentioned there, but that doesn't explicitly teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, if you think about it, Paul has uh, taught for 13 chapters before that moment, and he never felt the need to go through and explicitly explain what he was talking about there. What does that show? That they understood it. What it shows is, they didn't need an explicit explanation because they were already 
Trinitarians. Because if you think about when the letters of the New Testament would be written, what was addressed in those letters? The issues they were having trouble with, okay? So justification by faith alone. Paul didn't bring that up and argue for it in the book of Colossians. Why? Because apparently they didn't have trouble with that one, but they did have trouble with a different one. But in the book of Galatians, he did address those things. And so whenever we see uh, Trinitarian language used in the New Testament, and it's not argued for or a deep explanation is given, what you have there is Paul the Trinitarian is writing to other Trinitarians. They, this was a shared experience. They were already understanding this. So there are places in the New Testament where this is explicitly shown. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. But here, there are times Paul didn't feel the need to go through and say, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me explain to you what all that means. They already knew it. And by the way, the book of John is the place in the Bible that gives us what I think is the most instruction concerning who Jesus is and the triune relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. John 1 is important, but you need to know that even throughout the rest of the book of John, John very uh, uh, intentionally shows language that helps us understand the Trinity. So what there's not in the Bible is a section where it says, all right, here's the subheading, here's the Trinity section. That's just not the way God wrote the Bible, okay? Instead, he wrote it more beautifully than that. J John especially shows places where Jesus prays to the Father and we see his language. And there are some things to see even in that. Jesus didn't pray to himself. He prayed to his Father. He spoke to his Father and said, you. He spoke of he and the Father together and he said, we. He spoke of the Holy Spirit and said, he. All those pronouns, that's preaching a whole lot of things. That's preaching doctrine of the Trinity. And with that, consider John 17, verse 5. And yes, I'm winding down here. Stick with me. John 17, verse 5. We find ourselves here just all the time in John 17. It's just such a monumental chapter. Jesus is on the brink of the crucifixion in John 17. He is praying to the Father. This is, he is about to approach the, the last the climax of the humiliation before next would come the glorious glorification. And on the brink of that ultimate moment, he prays. I want you to look at John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christian, like those are those moments where just kind of like the book of Job, you just feel like you got to lay your hand on your mouth and just shut up. Because, I mean, what can you say to add anything to this? We're being brought into deep mysteries here. Christian, the glory of Christmas is that Jesus, the exalted and living God, stepped down from the throne. And you and I don't appreciate that unless we understand how far down he stepped. When he stepped down from heaven, he did not step down as some mere angel. 
He is the living God who created all things. He is the light of the world who even sustains the breath of the insects. The living God stepped down in order to come into the sewer. Stepped down to come and be humiliated. And humiliated to the deepest definitions of what it is to be humiliated on a cursed planet. Jesus left the glory of heaven. You read Revelation 5 and you see what heaven is like. Jesus is the recipient of the praises of the angels. You know, another thing that the book of John tells us is that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw that vision of the temple and he said, I saw the Lord holy and exalted and the foundations of heaven were shaking and the angels, the seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah says that was Jesus they were singing to. Jesus left the praises and the glory of heaven to step down and become a man, to become like his creation. And as a man, to be born into a family of no reputation, it's not just the common things that he was, you know, not born into a palace, but in a manger and was mocked as he lived on this earth, but then to go to the lowest of the low places of humiliation possible on a cursed planet, that not only in rubbing shoulders with the sweat and grime of sinners in a cursed world, but then to have those sinners hate him, strip him, nail him to a cross, to be the object of scorn and insult from all of these sinners. There is humiliation no lower that is possible. Jesus, the living God, the eternal word, left the throne to be born as a baby, grow as a man, keep the law and die for sins and then be raised and exalted. We do not appreciate the glory of that unless we know how far down he stepped. He is homoousios, God of God, light of light, very God of very God and by him the worlds were made. Christian, worship, worship, exult in Jesus, glorify his name by, by seeing his glory and the glory of the incarnation in what he has accomplished. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, you need to know that this one who is the living God who descended to the earth came here and bled and died because you must be saved. You are not okay. You must be saved by the one who came and bled and rose. And the Bible says that if you will trust in him, turn your heart to him, cry out in repentance and pray that he would save you, that God will. We plead with you to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, oh God, that in the Christmas season, you will help us to rightly worship you rightly glorify you by seeing your glory. Help us, Lord, to understand. Help us believers 
to rejoice in the way that we ought. We pray for any in the room that has never turned to be saved. We pray for the young ones. God, we ask that you will draw them to believe, to trust in Christ. Help us as we leave, oh God. Bless our fellowship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.